I have long been fascinated by old letters. I tend to keep old letters. I have a five folder, a file folder of letters from my grandpa Arnold. He used to write me letters. And my grandmother Harrington. I, I cherish, I treasure every one of those letters. Uh, both, of, both grandma and grandpa are with the Lord now. Uh, you may have a, a similar collection of letters from your grandparents or or you may have a collection from someone who was away from home, perhaps at college, or perhaps a soldier that was a long ways from home. Before the days of sat phones and, and Skype, letters were the best ways for soldiers to stay connected with folks at home. Here's a letter from Private Harry Shiraldi, an Army medic who was stationed at Omaha Beach in 1944. May 31st, he wrote, Dear Ma, Just a few lines tonight to let you know that I am fine and hope everybody at home is in the best of health. I just finished playing baseball and took a nice shower and now I feel very nice. Hope everything is going all right at home and don't forget, if you ever need money, you could cash my war bonds, anything you want to. This afternoon I went to church and I received Holy Communion again. Getting holy, ain't I? Well, Ma, that's about all I got to say tonight, so I'll close with my love to all. And hope to hear from you very soon. Take care of yourself, one of your loving sons, Harry. July 18th, his family got a telegram. The Secretary of War desires me to express his deep regret that your son, Private Harry Chiraldi, has been reported missing in action since 6 June in France, died on the beach at D-Day. If further details or other information are received, you will be promptly notified. You can bet that that last letter was a treasure to his mom and dad. Here's a much older letter that was also a treasure. This one is from the third century from a a Roman soldier, and it's written to his dad. The Roman soldier came from, uh, from Egypt, a small town in Egypt. He went to Alexandria, Egypt, where he enrolled in the Roman army. He boarded a ship and sailed to Italy. And and once he got to Italy, they gave him a uniform and some pay. In fact, he took some of that pay and had had a picture painted of himself. And he sent that painting home along with this letter. Appion to his father and Lord uh, Epimachus or something. Many good wishes. First of all, I hope you are in good health and that things are going well for you and my sister and her daughter and my brother. I thank the Lord Seraphis. That's an Egyptian god. I thank the Lord Seraphis. For saving me right off when I was in danger at sea. Their, their ship went through a fierce storm. When I arrived in Mycenaeum, a Roman harbor near Naples, I received three gold pieces from the emperor as road money, and I'm doing just fine. Please write me a letter, my lord father, about your own well-being, second about that of my brother and sister, and third, so that I may devotedly greet your hand because you brought me up well. And I may therefore hope for rapid promotion, the God's willing. Give my regard to Capiton and my brother and sister. I'm sending sending you my little portrait. My new Roman name is Antonius Maximus. All the best. You can glean a lot from old letters, even just a few fragments of old letters like this one. Well, what is true in life is especially true of the letters that God chose to include in the New Testament in our Bibles. Your New Testament has 21 different letters of advice and instruction written by a half dozen different authors under the inspiration or the guidance of the Holy Spirit. 
And at least in some cases, it seems that the authors were very much aware of the fact that they were writing words that God wanted them to write. Peter commented on Paul's letters in 2 Peter 3.16. He wrote, Paul writes the same way in all his letters. Speaking of them in these matters, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort. Now look at this. As they do the other scriptures. So Peter affirms that Paul's letters are on par with the Jewish scriptures. That, that's amazing. The letters in our Bibles were miraculously preserved over time so that we can be very confident that what we are reading is not just the words of the original author, but it's actually the words from God. For the next three months, we plan to uh, look at one New Testament letter. First Peter was written about 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. It's the first of two, two uh, letters that Peter wrote. Peter, of course, was the disciple of Jesus. And this morning, I want to introduce the book with this, just this simple outline. We'll talk about the author, about the recipients. We'll talk about why we should study it. And then I want to just camp on two words in the very first verse uh, of First Peter. First of all, what do we know about Peter, the, the author of this letter? Well, we know that Peter, along with his brother Andrew, was the very first disciple that Jesus, uh, that Jesus recruited. They were Galilean fishermen, that, that little lake way up north in Israel, the Sea of Galilee, we call it. They were uh, on the beach. They just come in with their boats, and Jesus walks down the beach, and he wa- talks to uh, Peter and Andrew, and he says, I want you to come follow me. Be my disciples. And they left their nets and their fish and their boats for their poor old dad. I just, I've always felt sorry for dad getting all this work and the family, you know, the business getting handed back to him after his sons just go to decide to follow this rabbi. Peter was the first disciple to become absolutely convinced that Jesus was the Old Testament Messiah. Matthew 16 says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, And still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter is the one who speaks up. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And I'm sure all the other disciples looked at him like, what? What did you just say? Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. Peter was the only disciple who had the courage to jump out of the boat when they saw Jesus come walking on the water toward them. Of course, Jesus had to rescue him. He got out of the boat and started walking, and the Bible says he started being a little fearful, and he he started sinking, but at least he tried. He got out of the boat. Peter was always the eager one, always fiercely loyal. Remember him saying, I'll die with you if necessary, Lord. You're you're not going to die. Jesus told Peter, because of his commitment, because of his personality, because of his his faith, that he would play a major role in the spread of the gospel. And Peter did. He did. Peter's name always appears first in the gospels when you're talking about the inner three of Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, and John. It's always Peter first. He was the leader of the 12 disciples. I don't know how he got there. He wasn't elected. I don't think he, he was just that kind of guy. Peter was the only disciple who offered resistance when the temple guards came to 
to arrest Jesus. Remember, Peter picks up a sword and whacked off the ear of the high priest servant who was there, part of the, the entourage to arrest Jesus. Jesus told Peter to put the sword away, and then he healed the ear. And whenever Peter's name is mentioned, our thoughts immediately go to one particular event. And it's the event you're thinking of right now. Because when we say Peter's name, we think of when he denied Jesus. Three times, standing there in the early morning light, uh, Peter denied that he even, he even knew who Jesus was. And then the rooster crowed. Peter had a powerful personality. He, when he was young, his brashness caused him some problems. Some of, some of you understand that. But you have to admire Peter for admitting his mistakes, for getting up when he falls down, and being willing to change. And he did change. No one knew Peter's potential better than the Lord himself. After the Lord had resurrected from the dead, uh, of course, Peter is still feeling horrible about what he'd done in denying Jesus, uh, Christ appeared, made a special appearance to Peter. And then he gave Peter a special commission. So after Jesus' ascension, when the disciples took the message of the gospel, first of all, to Jerusalem streets, guess who was preaching? Peter. He's up front. In Acts 10, it was Peter who first took the gospel across cultural and religious barriers to the, to the Gentiles. Remember the centurion servant, the, the uh, Gentile Roman centurion. So Peter was really had a, had a major role. And everywhere Peter went in the early church in those first few years, the Holy Spirit did miracles to validate his ministry. Well, First Peter happens 30 years later. Peter's in Rome by then. That's where he wrote the letter from. He's no longer young, no longer strong, and he's no longer impetuous. The man that we are going to hear speaking in First Peter comes on like a sage. He's got a lot of wisdom. He's a mature disciple of Christ. Reminds me of Proverbs chapter 20, verse 29. says, the glory of young men is their strength. That was Peter. I can do it. Get out of my way. Let's go. But by the time he gets to Rome, the edge is gone. That uh, bullishness is gone. He, he's not the same guy. The old fisherman's hair was probably gray by then. He's been down the road. And so now instead of just bluffing his way and shoving people around, uh, he leads through humility. He, he leads through gentleness. He leads through vulnerability, even weakness. Now, Jesus saw all of these qualities. Even right after when Peter had denied him, Jesus saw those qualities. Remember around the campfire on the beach where, where Jesus asked Peter if he loved him three times? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And, and three times Peter responded, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. And then Jesus said to Peter, very truly I say to you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. You made all your own decisions. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Some of you know how old age forces you to give up some of your independence. It's not an easy thing. It's not an easy process to go through. 
you become dependent on other people for many things that you used to do. And Jesus' prediction was surely in Peter's mind as he composed the letter. We'll see it in, in so many of the words in this letter. Peter identifies himself as the author in chapter 1, verse 1. But later in the letter, he credits a guy who was with him whose name was Silas. Now, Peter, remember, grew up in a rural area up north in Galilee. He was in a working-class family. They, they fished for a living like most everybody did around the lake. So Peter probably didn't have a great deal of education. In fact, uh, some people think Peter was actually illiterate. Uh, we don't know for sure, but, we, but, it's, but it's clear that Peter was not as comfortable writing as, say, Paul of Tarsus, you know, the highly educated. He was educated as a Pharisee, very high education. That's why Peter says he uses really big words that are hard to understand. Um, and so Peter had with him this guy Silas, and it was Silas who gave First Peter its elegant style of writing. Peter would not have written like that. Very good Greek grammar in First Peter. It's much better than Peter would have written. So you might say that Peter dictated First Peter, dictated this letter, but Silas kind of edited it. Silas made it, sound, Silas made it sound better. All, of course, under the superintending inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, opens this way. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Those, the recipients are all followers of Christ, Jews and Gentiles, although mostly Gentiles, uh, scattered in these small towns and provinces in Asia Minor, which is most of modern-day Turkey. Now, I'm going to say more about the recipients in a, in a little bit, but I want to move on to why should we spend a whole summer studying one little letter? Let me give you seven reasons. Number one, this is God's Word. We cannot spend too much time studying any part of God's Word. We cannot do better than study God's Word. You drive around, you check out the, the church reader boards, or you look at church websites, and what are they speaking on? All kinds of fad topics, all designed to pull in people to fill the seats. Occasionally, very occasionally, we've done a, a, a topical message here. But almost all the time, we're going through a book in the Bible. We believe that God, the Holy Spirit, can take whatever book we're going through, illuminate his word, and make it more relevant to our, our lives than a topical message could. So we go through the books of the Bible all the time. Now you may be surprised as we go through this letter, this first letter of 1 Peter, just how relevant it feels. And part of the relevancy is the second reason we're studying 1 Peter. This inspired letter will tell us how to live as the socially marginalized community of God. There's been a huge shift in my lifetime in our country. Forty years ago, I remember when we used to have, remember printed yellow pages? I don't know if they're even, they even exist anymore. Remember the yellow pages? And you used to go through the yellow pages, and, and if you had a Christian business, what'd you put in there? Put the fish. Yeah, you put the fish in there. You know why you put that in there? Because it brought in people. It let people know that you are a Christian. And so other people, even if they weren't Christians, 
would go, you know what, this is, this is a trustworthy person, and, and uh, I think I'll take my business there. there. There were social and economic advantages to, be, to identifying as a Christian. In fact, I worked for a guy, sad to say, who advertised on Christian radio, KPDQ. I always had it on in the shop. And, and uh, then if somebody came in and said they heard his radio ad on KPDQ, he actually charged them more. And he, said, he rationalized it. It's kind of a weird deal. He said, well, it's worth it to them to pay more to know they can trust me. <laughs> okay, all right. I'll have to figure that one out a little bit. But Not true today, though. Any business today with a Christian label is taking a huge risk, aren't they? Anyone who takes a stand, anybody, if you take a stand publicly against casual sex, against drugs and alcohol, against the killing of unborn babies, you better look out. You are risking social, uh, social rejection at the very least. It was the same way in the first century, under Nero and the Roman emperors. The church was excluded from society, just as Christians today can expect social exclusion if they live out their faith. We're going to talk a lot about this in 1 Peter, so I'll leave it at that for now. Number three, 1 Peter addresses the inebriating power of worldliness and materialism. Peter's message is... is It's so strong, it's almost an intervention of sorts for believers who have become drunk on material things. The first century and in our time. Number four, 1 Peter reassures believers and offers hope in times of trial and suffering. There are plenty of prosperity preachers around, like Joel Olstein, who will give you the impression that Children of God can expect to live charmed lives. And if your life is not charmed, if your health is not perfect, you're missing out somehow. And, and you need to, to, to claim something so that you can live this, this, this idyllic life. The harsh truth from 1 Peter is life is difficult. Jesus never told his believers to claim their best life now. Instead, he promised his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble. And then he added, but take heart, you have me. Next Sunday, we're going to get into the text a little more. And in verse 6, we're going to see where Peter says, In this you should greatly rejoice, though for a now, now for a little while you have had to suffer grief of all kinds. All kinds of trials. In his book, The Cross of Christ, John Stott wrote, The fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith, and has been in every generation. Its distribution and degree appear to be entirely random and therefore unfair. We memorize and we make posters out of, out of Jeremiah 29, 11, where God says to Israel, I know the plans that I have for you, plans for, for good and not for evil, to give you a future and the hope. That's chapter 29. You know what chapter 30 is in Jeremiah? Babylon, exile, captivity. That's how it works. And Peter is going to contradict the lie that life should be easy for followers of Christ. Uh, He's going to talk instead about fiery trials. 
Peter wrote this letter, of course, in the early years of, of, a, of the reign of an emperor named Nero. By 64 AD, Nero had gone nearly completely insane, and he was becoming desperate as well. There was a big fire in Rome in, in, six, in, in July of 64 AD, and, and uh, uh, Nero pinned the blame for this great fire that destroyed so many things on this Christian community. He knew he could get away with it because... They were an illegal religion. His government had made, had, had made Judaism a legal religion, so the Jews, didn't, they were the only people that didn't have to worship the Roman gods. But these Christians were not in Judaism. They, they were worshiping a guy that the Romans had executed. So they were con- con- convenient targets. Under Nero, by the end of his persecution, they would en- encase Christians in wax, and burn them at the stake to light Nero's gardens. You've heard that. They were crucified. They were thrown to lions. They were thrown to wild dogs. And, and believe me, word of those atrocities filtered out through all the empire across the Mediterranean world so that it was open season on Christians wherever they were. In fact, it's likely both Peter and Paul lost their lives in Nero's persecution. So writing this letter... Peter is well aware of the, of the rising storm clouds of persecution because of these tough times. Number five, why should we study 1 Peter? 1 Peter emphasizes the value of active participation in the community of faith. It, it cannot be just Jesus and you. The Bible never intended it to be just Jesus and you. There are no, no lone rangers in 1 Peter. The pronouns that Peter will use are all plural. A holy nation. Picture a whole bunch of people. People, not a person of God's own possession. You cannot be a church of one. We all have friends who are trying to do that. Can't do it. We know we need each other. You're here because, as Rick said, we we need to see each other. We need to be influenced by each other. We need to encourage each other. We need to rub shoulders with each other regularly. Number six, Peter tells us in 1 Peter how to make good investments. He tells us how to invest in things that really matter, things that you cannot lose. It's really good advice. And last, 1 Peter tells us how to beat the devil. This is great. When we get to chapter five, Peter will tell us to be sober-minded because he says, your adversary, the devil, walks about like what? A roaring lion seeking who he can devour. The devil is relentless. The devil has no conscience. He doesn't care about innocent people. He just wants to destroy people. He, the devil wants to kill you. And at the very least, he wants to neutralize your witness for Christ. So that's, we're in a real fight. A real fight. Because Satan is real. So, with all of that ahead of us. I think it's going to be a, a, a really good study, but I want to zoom in for just a few minutes on two words in verse 1. Now these two words, elect and exile, are key to understanding everything else in First Peter. Here's verse 1 again. Peter, an apostle, that means an authorized representative, someone who actually spent time with Jesus when he was on earth. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles. 
Now, the NIV adds a comma between these words that most translations don't. I prefer not having the comma. Elect exiles. Some translations say it's chosen foreigners or chosen aliens. But Peter's point is that that every believer has two identities, and put together they form a, a very interesting paradox because these words really, they almost contradict each other. On the one hand, we are elect. We are chosen. Now, the idea of election first emerges in Genesis chapter 12, where God chose Abraham and his people. Genesis 12:1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, the nation of Israel. And I will bless you and make your name great, so you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So from that point on, the Genesis 12 point on, chosen and elect are used all through the scriptures to speak of the people that God specially selected to be his own people. The Jewish people were chosen by God. They were, they were God's elect. They were so fortunate to be the recipients of God's amazing love. Peter, though, uses the word to remind both Jews and Gentiles that in Christ, Gentiles are actually grafted into this tree. And so Gentiles, you and me, we're Gen- most of us are Gentiles. We also are the elect. We're all one. So Peter will use all kinds of Jewish imagery to tell the Gentiles, you're, just, you're, you're, you're elect too. He'll talk about a royal priesthood. That's a Jewish term, but it applies to all Gentiles now. It's going to be talking about being a holy nation, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles too. And he does this to give all of us a great sense of security in who we are in Christ. Because together with the Jews, we are chosen by God. What an amazing thing. Amazing. Now, I'm not going to debate the word elect or the doctrine of election here because Peter doesn't debate it and it's mostly a useless argument anyway. The fact is every person who is in Christ is elect. Verse 2 says they are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. So to be elect is to be, is to be privileged which is just the opposite of the very next word. Right after the word elect is the word exiles. How does that work? Aliens. An exile is someone who doesn't really belong. It's someone who's passing through. It's someone who is socially underprivileged. Temporary residents, not permanent resident status. They're, they're, they're settlers. Now, the Jewish readers would have instantly, of course, related this to the Babylonian captivity when they were exiled, when they, how awful it was to be taken away and to have to live in Persia for those years. But Gentile believers also felt exiled because their faith in Jesus Christ made them targets, made them constantly suspect. In the Roman Empire, you remember that there were a lot of levels of, of people and, and what the exiles that we're talking about were just barely above slaves. The freedmen were slaves who had purchased or worked for their freedom. Even they were higher 
than exiles. Exiles couldn't vote. They paid higher taxes. They had almost no, almost no legal rights. They couldn't expect to get a fair hearing in courts. And you think about it, yeah, aliens, aliens uh, are always suspect in every culture, wherever you go. If something, something gets stolen, it's those people from somewhere else that stole it. You know, it's, those, it's those immigrants. It's those people that just got here. It's very natural to distrust people who are from somewhere else. I mean, they talk different. They eat different food. They, 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 they're probably just waiting until they can go back home. And, and the truth is, many never lose that yearning to return back to their home. In fact, the whole story of the Bible is a story of exiles. When Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden, they became exiles to God. And the rest of the Bible is about God trying to get the exiles back home where they belong. finally happens at the end of Revelation. So Christians are spiritually privileged, but socially underprivileged. And every true follower of Christ understands that. You know the tension. C.S. Lewis wrote about it in The Weight of Glory. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but do not make, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we'll get in. We shall get in. First Peter is going to tell us how we can live in a world that is not our home. A world where we feel like aliens. If you feel like a misfit in our society, don't be discouraged. That's a good thing. That means that you, you, you are aware of the fact that this is our temporary residing place. This is not our home. In fact, if you don't feel like an exile, if you feel completely at home in our culture and in our world, I'm worried about you. I am. You may want to ask yourself why that is. In the words of the old hymn writer, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, is an old good old gospel song. So 1 Peter is going to be this hard-hitting, very honest letter, but it's not at all a depressing letter. Don't get the wrong idea. He's talking about real life, but it's not hopeless at all. He will, he, he, he will constantly call us to praise God for the hope that we have in Christ and the protection that Christ offers and the work that Christ is doing in us and through us. In fact, he does it at the end of verse 2. It says, 1 Peter 1, 2 says, Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Because you are elect and because you are aliens. Let's bow together. Father, we're so looking forward to opening this letter. And as I've been reading it the last several months, it's just, I'm just amazed how much is in it, how much you've packed into this letter from a, a fisherman who didn't even know how to write well enough, so he had to have somebody else write it down for him. Thank you for Peter's life. Thank you, Lord, even for his failures, for putting the honest truth about Peter in the Bible so that we could relate to it. And thank you for how powerfully you used him in spite of himself and because of himself. 
Father, we want to honor you, and we want to worship you. We want to do your purposes, do, do whatever you want us to do for the time that we are, we are elect exiles on this earth. We give you the praise, because you're all we need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.